This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. The call of the Pacific Wren, a small brown bird with an incredible voice. And while we can appreciate its song, there's a lot it's communicating that we just can't pick up. Birds have ears that uh, work just much faster than we do. They can pick up changes in pitch and volume um, that occur on a much, much faster timescale. There's a whole world of sound we're missing. So if you've ever listened to a bird singing and thought to yourself, wow, there's so much going on there. Surely there must be something that's going by too quickly for me to hear. Um, there very much is. In fact, There's a universe of different sensory worlds across the animal kingdom we're not party to. Seals have this ability to track the uh, trails left behind by swimming fish, these swirling currents that last for minutes after they've gone by. And seals, with their incredibly sensitive whiskers, can detect these in a way that humans just don't have any hope of doing. Some of them so bewildering that they're almost impossible to imagine. Jumping spiders have multiple sets of eyes. They have one pair that does sharp color vision. And then they have another pair on the side that does movement detection. So that if you block the little eyes on the side, the spider can't track moving things anymore. And those hidden realms are the subject of this year's winner of the Royal Society Trevetti Science Book Prize. So today, I'm chatting to the author Ed Yong about his winning book, An Immense World, and delving into the extraordinary ways animals' experiences are totally unlike our own. I'm The Guardian Science Editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. You know, a duck sitting on a pond can see the entirety of the sky without needing to turn its head. Birds in general have wraparound vision that I find almost impossible to, to imagine. And then all birds also have access to an entire dimension of colours that we can't see. They can see a hundred times more colours than we can see. As well as being an enthusiastic birder, Ed Yong is a science journalist whose reporting during COVID earned him a Pulitzer Prize. More recently, he's turned his investigative eye to the entire animal kingdom to ask how they perceive the world. I asked him about the concept of Umwelt, the central idea that informs the book. Umwelt is just German for environment, but it's used in the special way that doesn't mean the physical environment around us. So my Umwelt is not uh, the sofa on which I'm sitting. It's not the phone that I'm holding in my hand. My Umwelt is the sensory environment. So it's the bubble of stimuli in which I exist. It is the sights and sounds and textures and smells that my senses give me access to. And the thing about the Umwelt concept is that um, it is always limited, right? So I'm only ever perceiving a small slice of everything there is to perceive. And that it is very different from one species to another, or even from one individual to another. I love this concept because it is 
truly a, a beautiful and profound idea. You know, it's it's very humbling. It tells us that we only are perceiving a small slice of reality and is for that reason also very expansive. You know, it tells us that no matter where we are, there's always the extraordinary lurking just under the surface of the ordinary. Many of us live with creatures that have very different sensory lives to our own. One example being dogs, thanks to their noses. I mean, despite the fact you point out in the book that smells this sense that all organisms seem to share, dogs really seem to be pretty good at it. What makes them so good at sniffing? So it's a combination of things. Um, Hardware is part of it. So they have um, structures in their noses, which give them this very continuous sense of smell. So they have side slits in their nostrils, which means that even when they exhale, they're sweeping up these swirling vortices of air into their nose. So they're getting smells rushing into their nose, whether they are breathing in or out. And then inside the nose, there are structures that split the incoming airstream in two. So some of it goes into the lungs and is for breathing. But there's a small tributary that goes to the back of the snout into a chamber that's specifically for smell. So when we sniff, you know, our sense of smell is stroboscopic. It it flickers in and out. A dog's is much more continuous. And then there's what they do with their noses, which is basically everything, right? Like watch your dog over the next 24 hours. Like if it encounters something new, it will sniff it. If it encounters a new dog, it will sniff it. That's, um, you know, a really important part of a dog's social life. Smell gives dogs a sense of each other's identity, um, their their age, their health, what they've been eating. An entire biography can be written in scent, uh, and dogs have access to that. Um, you know, we meet each other and we ask questions, right? Dogs don't need to do that. They can smell each other. When you were putting the book together, were there any animals that surprised you by having such a sort of crucial sense of smell? Yeah. Uh, so in the book, I write about um, ants. And ant societies really are cemented by their sense of smell. So when ants are tapping things with their antennae, uh, the antennae will grab molecules that are drifting along the air in the usual way we think of smell. They will also pick up odorous molecules that are on surfaces, heavier stuff. They are smelling in the same way that a dog is when it is sniffing. That sense of smell anchors all of the incredible social things that ants do, ants leaving pheromones behind all the time that tell each other where to forage or who's in charge. And if you, um, as some scientists have done, genetically engineer ants that can't smell, they just sort of don't really work as ants. You know, they can't function as part of a colony. They behave very strangely. Um, And you know, an, an ant that can't smell is an ant without a colony, and an ant without a colony is, is barely an ant at all. Now, as a podcast, we'd be remiss not to talk about sound. I mean, us animals all have relatively similar ears, biologically speaking. So I actually wanted to talk to you about, about insects, despite most insects, I guess, technically being deaf, they also seem to have this weirdest array of ears. Can you tell me more about that? So the majority of insects are in fact deaf, but the insects that can hear have evolved ears in all kinds of weird body parts. So you have insects with ears on their knees or 
um, along their abdomens or insects with that hear with their antennae. Um, we think of hearing as something that we do with two ears which are on our heads. You know, that that is a weird uh, feature of being human. Ears don't have to be on your head. Ears also don't have to come in two. Two ears are really good for sensing direction, but insects can basically conjure up an ear anywhere along their surface. My favorite example of this is uh, is the praying mantis, which has a single cyclopean ear in the middle of its chest, because all they're really trying to do is sense the calls of bats, and they don't need to know which direction that call is coming from, because when they hear a bat, they just react by dropping out of the sky. So insects seem to have this absolutely blank slate they can do what they want in terms of how they construct and where they put an ear or or their ears mammals seem to be a bit more constricted we don't have that sort of flexibility why why is there that stark difference between them it's because our ears have different um, evolutionary origins to those of insects. Insect ears come from these organs that are found all over the body and help them sense the position of their limbs and their different body parts. And it turns out that all you really need to do is to um, create a thin membrane on top of one of these organs to turn it into an ear. And insects can do that basically anywhere, which is why insect ears can evolve on pretty much any body part you can imagine. You know, some butterflies have ears on their wings, some uh, uh, grasshoppers have ears on their knees. I'd love to talk to you about some of the stimuli that we don't seem to perceive, Ed. I mean, maybe let's start with electric fields. What animals can sense them and how are they doing that? So sharks can sense electric fields and rays do as well. Platypuses can sense electric fields. A lot of these animals are picking up on the very, very faint electric fields that all living things naturally give off in the water. So most animals that can sense um, electric fields uh, are, are aquatic. The most incredible examples of this sense, though, come from electric fish. So fish that can produce their own electric fields and then sense them. Um, this incredible ability allows them to navigate through water that can often be too murky to see in. They can sense the way their own self-produced field is warped and distorted by objects around them, whether that's insulating objects like a rock or conducting objects like um, other animals or plants. They can even communicate with each other using electricity. So they can send out electric fields, they can pulse those fields. If you go to places like the Amazon or some rivers in Africa um, and dip an electrode in the water connected to a speaker, you'll hear the buzz of all of these electric fish, which are often pretty common. And the, these the, these electric choruses that are filling the rivers of the world that we otherwise wouldn't be able to perceive. And what about magnetic fields? I mean, plenty of animals migrate around the world and find their way back to a particular beach or tree or roof to make a, a nest, for example. I mean, th there's long been this idea that some of them are tapping into Earth's magnetic field. Tell me a bit more about where research is at on that. 
So this sense was only discovered in the 50s and 60s. Migrating songbirds or robins uh, were the first example, but we now know that many, many songbirds have this skill. Sea turtles have it. Maybe great whales have it. Um, and it, it's incredible to me because, you know, I, I can't sense the magnetic field of the Earth. I need to use a compass. But many animals turn out to have these inbuilt living compasses in their bodies. Um, so a sea turtle that hatches off the coast of Florida on the east coast of the US will make a clockwise loop of the Atlantic over 10 years, swimming past uh, the coast of Portugal and then down again. Now, if you take that baby turtle and put it in a lab and expose it to an artificial magnetic field that mimics what it might experience at different points on that journey it will orient itself to swim in exactly the right direction as if it was, for example, off the coast of Portugal. And it will do that despite never having been in the water before. This sense is very mysterious still. It is the only sense we know of for which we don't know the receptor. So what are the kinds of cells that pick up the Earth's magnetic field? And while there are many furiously competing ideas about how it works, none of them are set in stone yet. One thing I enjoyed in the book, Ed, was your exploration of how animal senses have this sort of evolutionary repercussions beyond the animal itself. And one of the examples you give is between bees and flowers. Just tell us a bit about that, will you? Flowers come in a wide variety of colours. And you could maybe ask, what kind of eye um, are these colours um, adapted for? Like, who's the audience for flowers? And it turns out that the ideal eye for looking at the world's flowers is the basically the eye of a bee. It is an eye with three kinds of colour sensing cells that are most sensitive to blue, green and ultraviolet, a colour we can't see. That kind of eye allows you to very uh, finely discriminate between all the hues and all the flowers around us. And so you might expect then that bees evolved eyes that were really good at seeing flowers. Turns out that's actually completely wrong. And in fact, the, the opposite of what happened, because um, the eyes of bees and their kind came first. Flowers came later. And so flowers evolved colours that ideally tickle the eyes of bees. It subverts this feeling that we might have of the senses as being quite passive things. And actually, just by perceiving the world, I am changing it. There is something extremely humbling about this shift in perspective, that, that there's so much information in the world around us that, that's essentially hidden from us. I'm wondering, as you learn about them, as you think about them to work out how to write about them, whether your sort of appreciation of these different ways of perceiving changes changes your interactions with animals or, or perhaps even your, more grandly, your, your perspective on, of life. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the whole point of the book. I, I want people to have this newfound um, respect for the animals around them, this newfound interest, this curiosity, this desire to put yourself in the shoes of another creature. That exercise has 
very tangible benefit to some of the creatures around us. You know, when when we um, don't remember that dogs exist in a world of smell, um, dog owners will often yank their dogs along on a walk when they're trying to sniff the things around them. It'd be like if you or I went for a hike in a beautiful national park. And every time we stopped to admire the view, um, someone clasped their hands over our eyes and dragged us along the trail by our necks. You know, it's not; it wouldn't be fun for us. It's not fun for for a dog either. Um, they they experience the world in a very different way, and we should let them do that. They are happier for it. I think also, I do perceive the animals around me in very different ways. Having thought about having thought about this topic, having read this book, um, you know, I I can look up my window now and I can see house finches perched on the the wires outside i can see a few crows flying past these are species that i see every single day walking around my neighborhood but i know that that finch on the wire can see a hundred times more colors than i can see it's just taken off now it can feel the air flowing over its wings and make minute adjustments to stay aloft it can hear qualities in its own beautiful song that my ears can't pick out that house finch is extraordinary its mere existence is special and i know that now and i feel that my life is richer for knowing that Ed, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the book. Congratulations again. Um, Real fantastic journey. Loved it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ed Yong. We've put a link to his book, An Immense World, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Now, if the idea of complex and nuanced messages hidden in song has piqued your interest, I'd like to point you towards a fascinating documentary you can watch on The Guardian. Called Birdsong, it explores the dying, whistling traditions of the Hmong people in northern Laos, a practice that straddles the boundary between music and speech. The film examines how the way we communicate changes the experience of listening. It's a really beautiful and interesting watch, so I'd recommend having a look for Birdsong on The Guardian. We've also put a link to that on the podcast webpage. And that's it for today. The producers were Madeline Finley and Eli Block. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de/nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.